0: Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience podcast. podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. And here we, and here we go. Go, go, go. Welcome, everyone, to the Strength Coach Experience, episode 34. Uh, Today, I want to welcome Jeff Casebolt, who uh, is uh, the owner of Dynavec Resistance Systems. They are uh, the creators of the Glutinator, which is an amazing machine to help uh, develop the posterior chain, and it helps in relation with uh, senior citizens and people that have some issues. And I thought it was a, an amazing piece of workout equipment, and I wanted him to come on today and talk about a lot of that, a lot of the biomechanics. Jeff, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it, and, and I'm pumped just to get you know get into this conversation, kind of pick your brain, and, and really talk and dive into the uh, biomechanics.
1: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Of course. Uh, so why don't we just go into a little bit, you know, of your background, uh, kind of growing up, and, and then we'll kind of get into how you ended up where you are today, with you know, in the field of biomechanics.
1: So for me, I, I I found this book not too long ago in in a box in the attic, type thing. And when I was a young man, my grandparents gave me a book, and it was How to Be a Quarterback. It was written University of Oklahoma, and they were running a lot of wing tee and and uh, triple option stuff at the time, but it was it was footwork. I took that book, flipped it open, um, penned it open, and learned my footwork as an eight-year-old. I know that sounds funny, but the reason I tell that story is because I've been a biomechanist my whole life. I, I was more of a, tech, you know, a technician, my footwork, my throwing arm, my arm path, overhead athletes, all that stuff. But flash forward to several years later, um, 18 years old on a basketball court, having the best game of my life probably took a jump shot landed my knee didn't do what it was supposed to do and and I hit the ground started flopping like a fish cussing like a sailor um, crawled off to the court sat down for a few minutes Um, pain kind of slowed down a little bit jumped up to go back in the game and decided that wasn't going to happen and at that point in your life you know you're 18 years old you think you're invincible and then you find out you're not it's a it was, a, it, was, it was a day that changed my life and consequently went through the process of evaluation, surgical procedure, found out that I had some muscle imbalances within my system, um, had the surgery, went to rehab, found out rehab, you know, was too passive for me at the time. I didn't feel like I was getting enough out of it. I went, I did this really crazy thing where I was in my first year of college. So I went to this thing called the library and they have, <laughs> I
0: didn't find out we had one until about my second, third year.
1: <laughs> no. And it's funny. Cause it's, I, I, you know, identified as an athlete. I played, you know, multiple sports. I played, you know, four sports in high school and, and because, you know, we had, we needed to, we had, we had the athletes, but we had the opportunity to play multiple sports and it's kind of a little different today. Um, and then rehabbed um, myself and, you know, using, you know, articles, periodicals, asking questions, developed a real strong curiosity and a passion to understand well beyond that the academic system was providing. and, And it drove me. And as a result of, you know, I, I rehabbed to the point where, you know, I came back and played two years of college volleyball out in California and, you know, volleyball and knees don't necessarily always get along. So I knew I had done something right. And that's how I started is just this, I think most of us start that way, right? We, something happens to us and we have to go figure out what it is. And as a result, I was, you know, I kind of what we were just talking about, I, it, it it went well beyond, you know, what I was learning in school. I had a a different level or different uh, intent to, to understand
0: yeah, I think that's very interesting you bring that up. We, we were speaking before the show, my my personal story uh, with, with CP, but I, I got hurt, you know, regardless of that, I got hurt in the weight room, uh, 16, 17 years old. And and when that happens, you're in shock because you're an invincible and you're truly invincible, not, you know, you have athletes that say, well, I feel my mind's great. My my body's great. I feel invincible. When you're 15, 16 years, you're, you're truly invincible. You could fall downstairs. I mean, it was not, I mean, used to play, I always tell this story. I used to play, I played basketball one time after soccer practice in cleats on a driveway. Mm. I would never do that again in a million years. I wouldn't even, I would cringe at the thought of that, but that was the mindset. And I think one of the things that you bring up that's interesting, and it's, I think it's, it's almost sad in our profession, and I don't mean that a negative, but you you see it all the time. People in our profession are athletes that are really on their game, especially at younger ages, it's a sad thing because that only comes because we got hurt. Because somebody, you know, at an upper echelon and I'm not saying everything, but somebody dropped the ball, right? They didn't teach us correctly or or they didn't um, you know, they weren't able to help us or just natural things, right? We we did too much in practice or just sports or sports we get hurt. But the people that go through these things, the earlier you go through it's almost the more prepared and the more understanding of the bigger picture they are as you, get, uh, as you get older and go through your career if you got hurt earlier, where you have people who, you know, we can bring up, you know, people, Brian Bosworth, let's just say, bad example, but a fun example, right? The guy's a monster, regardless if he took juice or whatever, but then he has some shoulder problems and then he's done in the NFL, you know, you could argue after Bo Jackson ran him over, but the point is, is that if you're a guy who doesn't get hurt, at all, and then all of a sudden, they have injuries, and you're at the upper echelon at this point, I think it's a lot harder, and a lot of times, you know, sadly, we see guys are RG3, right, you know, you're you're invincible, you're doing your thing, and then all of a sudden, you get hurt once, and because you don't understand that mental state or that process, you haven't been through it before, and it's so hard to deal with, and you now, you have to perform at the highest level, so I just wanted to, you know, point that out, but I think that's, that's one of the, maybe the problems with the early education, I guess, in terms of strength conditioning in sports, we don't explain these things to the athletes, or they don't have that great of understanding, unless they get hurt.
1: I also go one step further. And what I have seen is the most talented athletes usually don't find the weight room until it's almost too late in the process. Like, um, having worked around weight rooms, most of my life, you'll find that a lot of the real talented athletes will play this game who can start last in other words who can walk around the weight room and look like they're working out but they're not actually putting the effort forth that many of us would consider it essential and I, I i don't disagree with you and i how we change that i don't know but it is part of the culture and um, having been in this business with dynavec f- for several years now i've had been privy to many conversations at different levels and you know some of us are, you know, blind to it. But if you're really honest, you know, how many of your how, what is the percentage of your athletes that are really getting in to strength train, you know, in and in, in add that contribution, having been on a college campus, it's really fascinating to, to kind of walk down that road. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll find that the answers aren't nearly what we want them to be, or should be, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, you know, that's always a a a thing that happens, right? Especially when you get into professional sports where they, you know, they draft directly at a high school or bigger schools, you get kids that come in and they're amazing at baseball or, you know, th- that's my sport, but whatever it is, and now you're like, "Okay, when do you lift?" Oh, "I already lift in high school." And I think it's because of what you talked about because not only do they play that who can start last game, but also if you're batting 650, and you're all the way set up to go to LSU or UCLA or, or you're, you're on the docket to get drafted, it's almost like the coaches become afraid of you, right? If, if, and they want to leave you alone because they want to hurt you. And, and just from my personal experience, that happens at the upper echelons too. Major League Baseball, NBA, right? They get this they, – they forget that, that you're on the same level. You're just a professional and now it's, I'm afraid to tell this person what to do because they had a 1,000 yards last season or they were the MVP. When in reality, you have to understand this is your profession and you're on the same level. You're the coach, PT, biomechanist within a sport and they're players and your job is to explain to them what to do. Not if, you know hang out in fear because so-and-so doesn't like to do this. So now I have to, I'm going to sacrifice my job because- you know, we put the, I think it's the pedestal thing you talk about. It's, you know, why it happens in high school and then in professional.
1: Well, the one sport that got me that was probably the most interesting or fascinating to investigate was soccer or, you know, in other places in the world, football. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of athletes, soccer players that came from other countries, other parts of the world. And, um, As a professor, I didn't go into the weight room when they lifted, but I got to listen to their stories and their journey. It was really fascinating to me because many of these kids who come that are tremendous, high level, most of them are professional now at some level. They had never stepped foot in a weight room until they moved to America. And they, you know, and, and I got to play 20 questions with them like, you know, what do you think of strength training? And a lot of these kids couldn't, you know, couldn't get anywhere near body weight. They had to start, they had to go all the way back to what we would consider very basic movements. But four years later, upon graduation, one one conversation in particular, this young man was like, I go, what do you think of strength training now? He goes, now I'm stronger over the ball. I said, are you going to take strength training with you as you go back to Europe and coach over there? he goes, oh, hell yeah. Like, I get it now, but I didn't get it when I got here. And now I understand why. And that's when we had the whole conversation about performance versus injury and the intent of the strength and blah, blah, blah. But that soccer's soccer's the sport that opened my mind into what strength, you know, how strength influences performance. And the, the main reason is, is because in America, um, Our ability to produce a decent soccer player suffers in comparison to most of the world. And most of the world is still teaching the skill of soccer where we're trying to teach the strength of of soccer or doing it wrong. There's a misconnect in there. I'm not smart enough in soccer to know that answer. I just know that the conversation fascinated the heck out of me.
0: Yeah. I I think that's very interesting. And, you know, dealing with with kids from different places, it's a whole different dynamic. And I think you're, Right. Because, you know, I train some youth athletes and different things. What I've noticed is that here, especially, you know, because I can, I'll talk from the kids from the DR Venezuela and Cuba when they come in to play baseball, but the kids that are here younger, it's almost like if they're not good at the skill, they spend more time in the weight room, as opposed to going and figuring out the skill. And I think that kind of like, it's, it's like everything else, right? If you have a yoga teacher and I'm not saying anything against yoga, but what do they do all the time? They stretch. Do they really need to stretch? No, they should probably go to become better. I'm not saying they don't need to do more yoga, but to be beneficial, you want a person who's really into yoga, but low on resistance to go in the weight room and start adding some weight. So then you can have a balance of mobility, flexibility with strength through ranges. But now then you have the other side, you have a really big, strong baseball player, who's not good at field and ground balls or who's not good at technical stuff. And instead of putting the weight stuff on hold and going to learn the technical, it's almost like we beef up the weight room stuff, or I'm sure you've heard it. You know, we, we talked about the stuff with, with Dave before the show, but the velo thing. Oh, well, instead of, instead of learning how to pitch, biomechanically learning how to pitch and throwing what's best for your body, we go in the weight room and we try to reverse lunge three times our body weight without, trying to figure out how to do it on the mound because we think that's going to take place of the movement, the mechanics, and the way in which our body produces power.
1: Amen. Um, that's perfect. Well done. <laughs> well done.
0: Thank you. But like I said, I, I think that's just, you know, one of the issues. Uh, so let's just go through, you know, you said you played basketball, you hurt the knee, you went into, you know, uh, into college and played. When did you start um, kind of pursuing the the biomechanic route was it in college while you were playing or was it sort of after you you stopped uh, you know like like seriously I didn't mean like being interested just like when you seriously started pursuing the biomechanic stuff.
1: Um, it, I had a couple of events happen all at the same time. One, my roommate in college was an exercise biochemist, and I knew chemistry physiology really wasn't my thing. Um, his his girlfriend now wife um she was in uh, a nutritional biochemist and so the two of them would sit and talk in the living room and I would just that's where I learned my physiology let's just be honest but I was always fascinated with it was after I was injured and I was fascinated with the mechan- mechanism of injury and then I found I'm a I'm a left brain logical mathematical mind so physics made sense to me not physiology but physics and so I started gravitating towards my math classes my physics classes and then I started well wait a minute I can apply this to human motion like holy crap this is perfect for me and that's so it probably that transition started to take place right as I was starting my masters and the only reason I did a masters at all I was going to teach and coach that's what I had every intention of doing but in California at the time, the budget was cut, like 250 teachers were laid off statewide, there was no way I was going to get a job. So I did with anybody, I stayed where it was safe in school. And I started a master's, I probably was like, underqualified, So I had to go back and relearn everything. I faked my way through undergraduate sarcasm, but not really. <laughs> did the same and thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, and so I, now I'm serious about being a student. I'm, I'm serious about being an academic and, and, you know, I, I got, I started just, I, it, it just changed me, you know, and I got to, I got into, into the advanced physics classes, I like biomechanics classes. I started taking every elective in biomechanics. I wrote my master's thesis on lower body power development as it pertains to vertical jump and Olympic style lifting. Wasn't smart enough enough to, at the time to truly understand that my results were um, they were substantial, but I didn't understand it at the time. Now I get it like, and no one really knew what I was, what, how to interpret it at the time, but I still put me in conversations with like Dr. John Garhammer was one that I remember having conversations with because that was more like his area of emphasis um, and so I, I was privileged to have the opportunity to present at national conferences and was exposed to some stuff. At the same time, I I started personal training back in the wild, wild west of personal training, like nobody was really doing it at the time, or, or very limited, I should say. And I just kind of fell into this career almost by accident. Like, I feel like everyone took two steps back and I wasn't paying attention. And I started training and fell in love with it and trained for about 15 years and then when I really got serious as I'm like I see too many people getting hurt specifically lower body knee knee specifically is what fascinated me and I went to sold my business and went to do a PhD wanted to do something um higher you know I wanted to go beyond what what I was doing I wanted to reach a different level and that's how I got started really
0: Wow. Uh, it's a great story. And I, I especially like the part where you kind of your gift, right? Being left-brained and being very math-swabby, you, you kind of figured out how it it combined with something else and you were able to kind of mold the two things. I think that's an interesting journey because I've talked to a few people that, that go down that way. And, and mine, like I said, a lot of similarities, but mine is very similar in that I faked my way through, you know, the bachelor's degree stuff. And then when I got to the master's stuff, we started taking kinesiology and and biomechanics and I just understood it. I didn't know how to explain it. Why, but we would sit in class, we would go over things and then I would get a hundred on the tests and I would stare at the ground because I have a little touch of the ADHD. So sitting in a classroom for more than 20 minutes is, is always been hard, but, you know, just back to that, I would just watch this stuff, and I was like, okay, makes sense, next lesson, you know, there was no, I didn't have to go into the lab, and go through all this stuff, and you have people, not that there's anything wrong with this, but, you know, writing everything the professor said down, and I just, same thing, I didn't have to do that, I just understood what to do, and then I, I had to, you know, understand, then I, then I just added to it, and then the talking part, I started very early, I've been talking since I was, you know, 18 months old, and haven't shut up since, but that's why I'm not a librarian, and that's why I have a podcast, But they all those things kind of combine. So I always think that's very interesting. And I always love to see like the success and the heights that can go because you're using your your gift analytically and then you're pushing it to someone else because you do see and not to bring up that, but there is a lot of people that coach just to coach right Or, or that's they played sports and they want to coach and they don't. I think they limit themselves without having that extra information or you have the ones that don't want the extra information, which I think is the biggest flaw in the field is not understanding that this changes every day. Everything changes every day, the biomechanics, the movement, the exercises, and if you don't want to go with that, I think that's that's where we have some issues, especially at, at different colleges and things like that.
1: So let me ask you a question then, because you, you said that biomechanics and kinesis made sense to you. When you're standing in a weight room watching somebody, initially you were seeing things that other people weren't either seeing or grasping or understanding, and that's part of the reasons. In my, I'm guessing right now, but part of the reason why you gravitated this direction is because that, that the lectures you were getting in class were starting to play out right in front of you as you were practically working with someone. You were like, well, wait, wait a minute. Why are they doing it that way? Like what's going on there? Am I out of bounds or is that-
0: No, no, you're 100% sure. What what happened also too is I started spending a lot of times in weight rooms Well, I didn't, it didn't take me a long time to figure out, right? Just simple, not that if we have knee valgus, it's because your glute medius isn't working. So we put a band or something on it to, to initiate the brain to push out. I only had to see that once or twice to figure out that every time that happened in the squat, this is an option. I didn't have to watch, you're very, you're correct. I didn't have to watch things over and over and over if they made logical sense, right? Your glute medius doesn't work. So a lot of the times we have knee valgus or, you know, you have knee pain Uh, after doing something, it's usually, you know, not usually, but you know, you have knee pain to the side. Well, if your patella is moving out of the way or your patella is tracking medial, a lot of times it has something to do with your abductors or the muscles inside of the leg. So a hundred percent, I didn't know the the names and all the stuff at the time, but even when I was very early on, I was very good at making correlations and I never understood explaining stuff exactly why we had to explain things over and over and over and over again it was you know this causes this this is how you fix it maybe there's a list of different things but that's it and then it was on to the next set of corrective exercises so yes
1: no no and like i said because i always tell people i see graph paper and i see segments and i see vectors i Mm -hmm. that's how i see things and i've always seen it that way and i never understood but it's it's fun to talk to people about that because when I watch somebody, I, yes, I'm looking at them, but what I'm looking at are, are like hip joint centers or I'm looking at where knee is in relationship. With them, and it's just how my brain processes as I'm working with someone that has some level of pathology that why are they compensating? Like what are they doing and why are they doing that? Is it previous injury? Is it just, they've never been taught properly? Do they have muscle imbalancing? Like what, what is that reason? And that's just how I think or function as a as a clinician or a, a professional in the weight room.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, to your point, I was talking to my, one of my, you know, really good friends yesterday about when you become in this session, I think you really know you want to be a strength coach. When you see somebody perfect squat, you get a warm feeling like it's Christmas. And I've gotten that ever since I started teaching squats and people are like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, the best, the best thing in the world to me is watching movements that are that look good. I like watching sports on TV is amazing. Some people are like, why is that amazing? I'm like, it's because of what it, you know, and you can second this, what it takes to get to that position, either the genetics, the abilities of the brain, the proprioception, or even better, somebody who's like a a Bambi. And then they, then they learn how to move efficiently through movements. I mean, I think that's incredible. I was watching the the masters thing they had yesterday, the walk around watching them swing is incredible. I'm like, this is, this is unbelievable. You know, you, I golf occasionally and I shoot, you know, triple digits, but it's just one of those things. I think it's that understanding. You, you don't, I think in order for you to, you know, you don't know where you've been into you or you don't know where you're, uh, where you're going until you know where you've been pretty much in sense of exercise. You don't know, unless you understand how complex the movements are, you're never going to have appreciation for getting there. And I don't think you'll ever be the best you can be if you don't take the time to understand how big of a deal that is. I remember, you know, when Usain Bolt ran a 9.56, I was in a hotel room with my friends in Jersey Shore, and I was in awe. And they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, this guy just ran a 9.56. Like, that's, that's unbelievable. And they're like, why is it? On-? I said, A, it's the world record. And B, he's about six inches taller than anybody else to ever do it. And he runs like a gazelle and he and he stopped 30 yards before everybody else, and he still won by 20, 20 feet. You know, and it's little things like that, I think, that you, you talk about seeing things in a different way, you know, being able to analyze a movement and, and we only see things in a certain way. You know, I, I don't think you can see it any other way because in a weight room, whether you're by yourself with a client or you coach teams. We have to be aware of what's going on, right? I even do it now. I go to the gym. My friends, I know what's going on all around the gym. In a public gym, I know what every person's doing and about what they're working on. And my friends are oblivious and it's not their fault. But I think that's interesting. I love that point. The abilities to kind of see everything as graph paper and kind of as a moving mechanism. And there's every movement and every reaction, something happened to get you there.
1: Well, I always the back to the same bull, I always question. I if he would have ran through on that 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 it, it the world record would have been untouchable. Like yep. he was so far ahead of that pace, it was amazing to me. And, and the second thing I wanted to interject is, I used to always tell people I watch ballerinas the same way I watch basketball players. It's just it's human motion that is. It, and then the irony of that is, is years later I'm in a biomechanics lab and and uh, I got to work the computers one time when we were collecting data on uh the fort worth uh, ballet troupe, okay. and they Not were doing one. i was
0: i was there in 2012
1: okay and they the we were asking them to do a um, uh, which is basically your foot slides out in front of you and it circles around to the back of you and then it slides down into your next to your other your, your uh, stance foot and i was absolutely blown away at what I just saw because you got to realize I'm in the little control center and all I can see are the reflective markers and I I could not wrap around my brain what I just saw the markers do so I had to walk out into the actual main laboratory and say I, I apologize but can I see you do that live because what I just saw I don't believe so I mean I was just as hook line and sinker on this ballerina being able to do her quote-unquote sport it, That's the way I look at it. And just watching her was was transfixing because of it. But to me, it's just like watching somebody on a basketball do a reverse layup or whatever it happens to be. It's just, it's motion that is tremendous to to be a part of or witness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think that, you know, you you get, you have to have appreciation for all movements and and dancers are incredible. You know, it's kind of like, the difference between I use Broadway plays and and regular actors. Yeah, they get more, regular actors get more money. But if you go watch a Broadway play, I'm like, this is unbelievable. People are like, why? I'm like, this guy just had three hours worth of lines. He didn't, he can't stop. He can't hit pause. He's been talking for three hours with no roll, nothing in front of live audiences over and over and over again. And he can't screw up. There is no do over. People just paid $300 to stare him in the face as he does this, but it's kind of the same thing, right? Being able to, you know understand those you know the the sports but same thing ballerinas is basketball ballerinas don't get as much praise but the stuff they do is amazing it's 10 times harder than than what they do with basketball and i think it's interesting too the bolt thing i read somewhere if he would have put it all together he would have ran nine three ish maybe the two eights and i was like that No, i don't think anybody would touch that unless we start making carbon fiber knees that
1: well, I once, there was an article that appeared in uh, it was Scientific American. It was many, many years ago. Marilyn Jones uh, was on the cover of the magazine. I remember that. And they said, "What what is our human capability? And what it is, is like, at what point do do we start to break things or tear things mm-hmm. when we try to reach our human limitations? And they went on to further say that, like, you know, biomechanically, I'm like, wow, wait a second, hold on. Like it, it really put my brain in a much different place analytically because I'm like, what is the human tolerance? Like what, where do we at some point start to have to, what is our ceiling? Like, how does our ceiling? And that affected my understanding of how strength actually contributes to performance through injury minimization by minimizing injury potential, your performance has an opportunity to elevate because now you can practice your skill at a lower work capacity. And that's always been my approach, but it was that article that really kind of punched me in the nose and said, okay, look at this from a different point of view than you are. And I can't remember the year, the date or the issue or anything. I just remember that article is one of those that made me look at things from a slightly different point of view. And it pretty much changed my approach and how I worked with people.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's uh it's a big topic now, right? They talk about a baseball. People are like, when is when is the mile per hour gonna stop? You know, are we gonna get to one I've heard 108, 110? Uh what do you what's your opinion on in terms of sport? What do you think will be the limiting fact? Do you think that we're gonna see a vast increase? Let's just talk about baseball in Velos, or do you think that where we are right now is kind of the top? Because personally for me, I don't see us throwing 107 miles an hour. I think we're close. I mean, unless people start strapping on carbon fiber stabilizers or, you know, and I don't even think you could take all the growth hormone you want, your arm's going to fall off before you get to 105. So I just want to get, you know, cause it's, it's been a topic and I argues a little bit. What's your, your, you know, opinion, you know, scientifically, do you think we're at the echelon or do you think we have a long way to go? I just don't see it with, in terms of how your shoulders built and the mechanism us you know, throwing in 200 miles an hour.
1: Well, the way that I look at it, it, there's a, there's a Netflix documentary. I'm not even sure if it's still on there, but I caught it when it was on Netflix, it was called fastball. Yep. And and if you get a chance to sit down with it, it there's another one called knuckleball and they're both, you know, just, if you're, if you're into baseball and you're, uh, and you like the numbers, it's they're both excellent to spend some time with. But the, the thing that's really fascinating is, have we really increased our capacity, our capacity? Do we throw harder today than we did 50 years ago? And the, the the answer is probably not. I mean, the average pitcher probably does, but the, the, the fastball pitchers of their time Mm -hmm. are probably just as the velocity was probably really similar back in Bob Gibson's day than it is in Nolan Ryan's day than it is today with Chapman or whoever. And they the numbers. It's funny you, you threw them out there. The n- numbers that they're saying is like 107, 108, um, is what they're what they're speculating. And what you really see in the, in fastball, in my mind, what came out was our ability to track it more efficiently and standardize the tracking. Because you know Sandy Koufax, they were basically trying to run a motorcycle down the side of him. He had to time his arm on release to get an idea of how fast that ball, because we didn't have a, a gun to yeah, be able they to use rec-
0: the highway patrol. Uh, yeah, radio yeah, yeah, gun. Yeah. 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 With uh, what is it? Bob Feller maybe, or uh, oh, was it? Bob? Okay. I might've got no, that no, wrong. It, it might've been, no, it might, they might've done it with him, but I, I remember them talking about it with, it was either Whitey Ford or Bob Feller. I'm not a hundred percent sure. You but might I just, be. Yeah. No, no. But I remember they were talking in that area. They were talking about using the, yeah, the highway guns.
1: And then they start talking about where do you actually record? Where do you point the gun now, nowadays, and now it's all standardized. Like they know exactly that you pointed at a certain distance from home plate and it's standardized every, you know, every ballpark in the nation does exactly the same way. So all the numbers have been regulated and, but they say that, you know, even though the vol, the, the velocities have gone up, they, they're, they're misrepresented from some of our, hardest throwers from years gone past because they didn't standardize it back then. Um, the, the part that always fascinates me is when you start looking at pitchers, like, like Doc Gooden doesn't make any sense to me. Like when I, I watch him throw and I've trust me. I mean, he was what five, nine to five eleven, 165 to 185 pounds. He was somewhere in that ballpark, right? He wasn't what you would consider somebody who was, a you know, a that he he shouldn't have thrown as hard as he was Yeah. and that's the part where you like to me it, there has to be something anatomically different about his shoulder in terms of what mom and pops gave him mm-hmm. that allowed him to throw that hard for that long to be able to, to to continue with longevity on on the on the diamond I just so like his story is the one that kind of fascinates me But, like, we talked about Nolan Ryan. I mean, you look at that young – you look at his base. I mean, his base is tremendous. He could probably still throw in the 80s, according to him, today. You know, like, that's something that he's on Dan Patrick's show said not too long ago. I could probably still hit, you know, high 80s, maybe 90 on the gun. Like, what? You know, but that's because of his mechanics. And so, it's – to me, I think we're probably about that limitation – in terms of pure velocity, but I think what we can do is help more young men get to higher levels is I think where the science is going to go. Not not that one individual, but I think you're going to have more breath, if that makes sense, more breath of athletes that can actually get to that level than previously, because we're understanding a little bit more about the science and the contribution and the arm path and, and the mechanics a lot better than we did back then. they just kind of had to figure it out on their own. And from the way I understand it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, you know, the, the velos are the similar, but, but like you said, there was no way to track it. So people said Bob Gibson threw hard because some people saw it and they said, Oh my God, he threw hard. Now there could be another guy who threw just as hard, but it didn't look the same. Right. Or, or you know I, I like I like that you, you bring up an interesting point. It was all about the mannerisms and how they threw, or if they were supposed to throw hard, right? Because we talk about Doc Gooden, five eleven, right? So if you had a guy, let's say in the nineteen fifties, sixties, whatever, and you're you're throwing, but they don't look like they should throw hard. Now we're we're and if we don't have something to to measure. I think, you know, you're you're going to lose a lot. And I, I think that's interesting because you have your DeGroms, right? Why does DeGrom throw? Because DeGrom is your picture. If you could build a pitcher in a lab, biomechan- it'd be him because he has all the levers. He doesn't go and lift 7,000 pounds. For everybody listening out there, I hate to tell you, but he's not out there deadlifting 650. Biomechanically, it's beautiful watching. I mean, I was around him in person and it's just, he's just, uh, you know, he's six foot five, six, four, he weighs 200 pounds, but it just, all the joints work well. And yesterday he's throwing 102 now, you know, and I I think the sky's still the limit, but I I said, you know, I think it's interesting you bring that up. It's all about the biomechanics. And I think we need to somewhere start to go back to biomechanics first, strength to help you get to better biomechanics. But for some reason we flipped it over and it's Weights and strength and weights and strength and deadlifts and, and all these different things. And then and then let's try to get them to throw better. When in reality, it's the other way around because I have a side note. I have a friend that works for the Astros. That's all the stuff I'm going to say. But there was a guy that threw 94, 95 miles an hour, but he was skinny. Oh, God. They put him in a strength program for a few years and his velo never went above 88. And then a few weeks ago or a month ago, They got a coach uh, that understood biomechanics. They realized he wasn't pushing off his backside. They changed his mechanics around and he hit 93 for the first time in two years, independently of the weights he's lifting. So I think, you know, what we've been talking about, biomechanics has to be the key. That's how we prevent injury and make people more efficient, right? A reverse lunge at twice your body weight is not going to prevent you from getting Tommy John.
1: Well, I always tell people this way in, 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 Um, I've been privileged to be around a lot of really good golfers and you give me, you know, like you said, triple digits or a bogey golfer and and you get them stronger. You're just further in the woods. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not, it strength only matters if skill is, is been addressed and if skills there and you manage their strength increase, they Especially in golf, because golf is fascinating. Because a college golfer will play two 18 holes in one day, back to back. You know, I don't care who you are. Two 18s back to back, you're you're pretty beat up by the end of the day. That second nine is going to be rough, and trying to keep that club face in contact with the ball just right. So, where what I started doing with golfers is I started working on just their strength capacity. I wasn't trying to make them more ballistic. I wasn't trying to to you know all they wanted was to get them stronger so by that second nine of the second 18 they were their swing looked similar than when than how they started the day that's all we were looking for and the measurement that we use was what's called smash factor it's how efficient your club face interacts with the ball speed of club face coming in and ball going out and what we found is just by improving strength they knew how to swing a club. These were all college-aged golfers that many of them will have some opportunities post-college. And as a result of, we were changing their their second 18. Their second 18 started to get better, and the university started to get more competitive. That's And it was a very simple concept, but we weren't trying to interject strength is the end all be all we are trying to promote skill get your skill down we're going to introduce strength for the purposes of just maintaining joint stabilities through mobility of the movement and then making sure that smash factor stays at a high level for the entire day that's typically a monday for a college golfer then they come back and play 18 on tuesday that's a normal um from where the conferences that we are in that's how they play
0: yeah absolutely i i I mean i want to bring up it's similar to what joel jameson talks about with ufc fighting you know he talks about uh you know a lot of the upper echelon stuff he does you know when you're tired or, or you know he'll do things like at the end of a workout you do uh hurdle jumps or things to keep your heart rate up and that is the same thing because i want your right hand to be as strong and produce as much or around as much force in the fifth round as we did in the first and that makes you efficient and i i think just what you're talking about with the golfers, that is what we're after in pitching. We want to make Jacob DeGrom's velo the same. That's why Verlander sticks out. I mean, Verlander has the only true spin, if you will, in in baseball, the way the ball spins, that's why he's so efficient. But he was real big on because he was 101 in the seventh inning. And I think those are the things that we have to start talking about. It's not how much – So-and-so because, you know, you have to look at – they're not shot putters. They're not throwing one fastball and then they're going to go sit down. We are throwing 75 to 110 pitches per time out there. So I want your velo, you know, and and I I think, you know, one of the things we've been touching on, I don't think people take a step back and look at it in context because if you sat down every pitching coach and said, hey, would you rather have your guy throw 107 for two innings or throw 102 over eight – they're going to pick the second one, right? Look at Roldis Chapman. And I think that it's, it's all about the context and how you present things, right? We were talking about how kind of the, the, the world of biomechanics for me and you was presented in certain ways. I think it's all about presentation. I think if we, or as strength coaches, as biomechanics, you know, go out and say, hey, what would you rather have and have them pick between the two? And that's how we change. Because somewhere buried in that, we still have the, oh, well, he deadlifted 600 pounds for one. Well, that's great but what does that do now can he lift 600 pounds 20 times in a row with 20 seconds rest every three minutes for two hours now we're getting somewhere
1: well and and, and that's so many years ago i mean when i first started in my career i mean it's probably 25 years ago i it was one of those little coming to jesus meetings where i sat down and said what is my job like what am i doing and I, it was at that moment that I realized that my job was actually to minimize injury and not not necessarily increase performance. Increase performance is a position coach. Now I don't care if they're volleyball, tennis, football, baseball. Soccer, I don't care what it is. Their position coach is responsible for what you're calling biomechanics. I, called it a, I just called it skill. So skill acquisition is what their position coach. My job is just to reinforce the strength. And my whole idea of it was if I increase strength to body weight ratio, I improve your metabolic capacity, but I also improve your strength to body weight ratio. And so I started to move away from this idea of maximal strength. Maximal strength looks great on a wall with your name next to a number, but repetition strength Pick a sport outside of what, what you just said, like throws in field or, you know, a, a lifting or lifting competitions. But when you start talking about field sports or ball sports, you're talking about the ability to reproduce that output multiple times over an, ex, over an expanded amount of time. And to me, that became the most important part of this is to raise their capacity so that they're operating at a lower percentage of their total work capacity and if that is my objective I'm going to present an athlete that is going to be a little bit less injury prone because they're not going to be compensating as they reach a closer to a level of fatigue that was my whole intent and I've been preaching that for 20-25 years now but you know I think sometimes I feel like I'm in the minority standing out there by myself on you know on a soapbox but that's just one of those philosophies that I developed a long time ago. Um, the, Then it's kind of evolved from there. But that was my initial come into Jesus moment was, what is my job? Like, what am I supposed to be doing with these athletes?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that falls in the same thing if we look at it in the strength realm. It's what is your job? And everybody goes, I have to get the guy stronger. But somehow that ends up translating into maximal strength, when in reality, it's I need the guy to be efficient on the mound. I need the guy to be, okay, he wants to throw 90 pitches? I need him to be as efficient in the 90 pitches. And I, I think Louis Simmons is one of the only ones that does it. I don't know of anybody else, but he does the stuff where he'll take an offensive lineman and they'll do a 600-pound deadlift every 35 seconds for four downs, and then they'll go relax and come back. And everybody's like, well, that's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? Right? It's it's it's, it's you're mimicking, you know, the Vonderschuck stuff. You're mimicking – Exactly what's going on, right? I mean, I was, I tried it a little bit in college. I would have guys rest for 27 seconds, rough, give me, give or take. That's how much time usually in between certain things. But I I think that's, that's, it's, it's again what your job is very interesting. As a strength coach, your job is not to get a guy as strong as possible, unless we're taking him to a power meet, it is to be able to get a guy to be as efficient at whatever he he's supposed to. And I, I think that's interesting. I think that's great that you've been talking about that. I just think it gets lost because it doesn't look good, right? It looks good on Instagram. If you can bend a thousand pounds.
1: I no comment. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the reality kind of one of the things that we start playing with is like, um, we had a kid, I was a previous life. I was a professor and I had a kid in the measurement eval class who, who, his dad was a very prominent football coach in the area and wanted to switch to more of a chip Kelly type offense at the time. And they wanted to run an offensive play every 17 seconds. That was the goal. I said, can your lineman do that? And he, he kind of paused. He was like, what do you mean? I said, well, you, How long does a football play last? What is your on and off? You're talking about an average football play is, what, between three and five seconds. You're going off by 17. You're looking at a one to three ratio, one to four ratio. Can your your offensive team survive that? Are you going to have to substitute? So we started looking at efficiency of movement with one to three, one to four ratios. And that was his measurement. It was... It was, it was a lot of fun. We had a good time, but what you could tell what it did with this kid is it opened his mind and like, Oh my God, I'm not looking at this the right way. And that was my job is, you know, as a, as a professor at the time was to proverbially punch him in the nose as hard as I could and get him to think differently than he was. And ultimately what it is is how, how hard and fast can you go and still maintain technique because when technique starts to break down, that's when we see injury potential elevate or increase. And I'm not saying everyone's going to be injured if they're using poor technique. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying the potential is there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it's the ability, we have to start as a, as a, as a unit, right? As a sports science in general, we, we have to break things down in that way all the time. And I think it would be, better off, right? We talk about the biomechanics, strength, conditioning, even if we go into PTs and ATs, because a lot of times with them, they they want to deny what the person's going to have to do. I always feel like nothing against ATs, but sometimes it's okay. Well, they're going through rehab. What are we going to do? Oh, we're going to, you know, I think you, you talked about it, a little less aggressive, right? When you first went through it's, oh, let's do leg raises with a weight, uh, uh, a leg weight that's four pounds on their ankle for ACL. I mean, yeah, but, but in six weeks they have to go, run at 15 miles an hour and then stop on a dime and then jump over somebody and kick a soccer ball. I said, so what are we doing? And I, and I think that's what we need to do is just be able to dive into the thing, because I think what, what gets lost a lot is they're going to do the sport regardless if we do our job or we don't. So if you want them to get hurt, then we, you know, we, we, we can overlook those things, but if we want them to succeed and do our jobs I think it's important to look at it that way because that's the only way we can really help them if we dive in deep and, and make them as efficient as we can at the at their top power outputs to decrease that that potential for injury.
1: Well, the way that I the way that I look at what you just said is, is there's this term that's being tossed around all the time called functional training. And I, I always kind of throw that a curveball back at somebody when they throw that at me I'm like tell me something more more functional than strength and what I mean by that is if you if I increase your strength we have a lot more opportunity to improve your movement and and what you're telling me is a, a lot of these individuals already know how to move but for whatever reason they're either imbalanced or weak or they're compensating or the injury isn't recovered or psychologically they haven't come back. There's a reason. I don't know what that is yet. I haven't worked with them, but if we improve their strength, it's amazing how many people will naturally kind of progress. into what it is you want them to be able to do their position coach wants them to be able to do. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's like a buzzword, right? But I, I think you're right. the, if, you, if we did it, just like with biomechanics, if we open the word up, you, you start to lose it, right? Because I think people mistake that word for a bunch of different movements in different planes and somehow it's related to a sport. When in reality, if we, if we opened it up, it would be, okay, what do they need to be more functional? Oh, they need to be stronger? Then that would still be functional training. I think instead of breaking it down into the root word function, what is the function? To be most efficient at whatever movement, we, what, what do they, what do they need most to do that? It's just, it's, I think it's, again, misinterpreted people. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. I've been in gyms where people say we train strength conditioning here. And I'm like, well, you can't train strength conditioning because that's a profession. That's a, that's a group of people who train athletes and, and teams and they're in charge of increasing strength and their conditioning. It's not a way of, of training, but I think you see the same thing. We train with strength condition. What does that mean? You know, Oh, you, you weight lift with your breathing heavy. That's, I mean, you know, it's, I think it's the same thing with these, these buzzwords that that kind of cause some
1: issues. Well, going back to functional training is most people use an unbalanced surface or they mimic a sport specific movement with resistance. Well, if you do mimic a sports specific movement with resistance, you can go back to the you know the old donut on a baseball bat, how that's evolved over time. We don't do that anymore because it actually creates a neuromuscular confusion in the body that actually puts a hole in your swing, is from what they found out. Um, can you just oh my go God. through
0: that a little bit more? Because I've been yelling about that for years, about you should go up there and swing a fungo as fast as you can and then do that. But just really for the audience, just dive in a little deeper Cooper. into that, just to kind of break it down. Because I like I said, I, I 100% agree with... I'm I'm
1: drawing a blank on the name right now. I want to say it's out of the university of Hawaii and I want to say it's Cooper, but I don't, don't quote me on that. I might be off on that one, but they're basically many years ago, what they showed is that if you try to mimic a movement that you need to perform at the highest level. And and it's been said many times, one of the hardest things to do in all of sport is hit a baseball, Mm -hmm. you know, baseball, softball, you know, a a cylinder bat on a round ball. It just, it's, you know, it's been argued that that's the most difficult thing. And what they found out, Oh my God, I'm seriously drawing a blank. I apologize. Oh, it's okay. So, but, but it's, it's a blam. It's a groundbreaking study, but what they found is is that anything that's plus or minus 10% of the implement you need to swing or move or whatever it happens to be, it actually creates a neuromuscular difference. It's, it's a different pattern, a different motor pattern in your body. And, it was made most famous probably by Tiger Woods when he said, I'm stuck between two swings. When he tried to do that first post-surgery comeback, what he was saying was, is that neuromuscularly, he's trying to swing two different ways simultaneously. And if you remember, he was spraying the ball over the yard. Mm. He was struggling to find his groove again, his motor patterns, for to put it in scientific terms. And so what what we found is if you go back and watch just the on-deck circle for the last 30 years, what you will see is two bat swings and, you know, go back to the old Bugs Bunny cartoons and, you know, picking up a dozen bats or whatever. And then you see that, then, you know, the, the, the donut on the bat and trying to time the pitcher and, and they felt like they were swinging. But anyway, what we've learned now is that what that actually does is it changes your motor pattern and it can't and potentially put a little hole in your swing where you're either over the top or underneath trying to time up the most difficult thing to do in sports. So now what we see is somebody will pop a donut on there, kind of loosen their shoulders up, get a, use the momentum of the bat to kind of for mobility of the upper body or mobi- However, they're using it. They'll pop the donut off, take some real fast swings with their, their, their weapon of choice, the bat of choice. Then they'll step into um, a batter's box. And they're less likely to have that little quote unquote hole in their swing. And so it was a it was a groundbreaking biomechanical study because if you take just that knowledge and start to apply it to some of this other sexy stuff that we see on social media, we'll start to realize that a lot of that stuff is just immediately eliminated because it isn't a skill and it yeah. isn't strength training, and it's not going to transfer if we understand our 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 rules of biomechanics, our rules of uh, motor learning—it violates the science. So when I, I'm probably the worst person to sit down in front of in social media because I'm like, "That's BS, that's BS, that's BS." Here's why: boom, boom, boom. And the reason is, is because the science is not being represented well, and they're 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 violating very basic principles of how you would want to neurologically or physiologically train an athlete to be more proficient i.e. I. better transfer
0: yeah I, I think we bring up uh, driveline that is one of my problems with driveline and weighted baseballs not that the stuff i mean i've i've met them i've i've talked to them been at conferences and, and nothing that they're doing is is i think what they're doing is great and i think it's great that they were the first ones to bring the biomechanical analysis uh into pitching into you know the movements and, and how the ball spins and efficiency of spin rate and everything else but I also think independently of them, not them. Now you have these coaches that buy it and now everybody's throwing weighted balls. And as we continuously talked about, and we talked about before, if we're loading a deficiency, all we're causing is a problem. So if you throw like garbage or your mechanics are not there, and then I go and give you a ball that weighs twice as much as a baseball, all we're doing now is a, we're creating imbalances. We're bringing you closer to getting hurt. And if, if they do work, because it does work on a base level, if you throw something heavier, you're going to get a little stronger and eventually produce more force. But now if we have bad bad mechanics, all we're doing is putting pressure on, on the things that uh, are a bad patterning and we create injuries. And I think that is one of those things where it comes out of context because it's based around science, but it's not for everybody.
1: I'll go one step further. I, I had a great semester where I had probably six, seven, eight baseball players in my class at one time. And I think six of them were on the pitching staff and they were all in on the weighted ball. And I just, I said, fellas, I, I just don't see it. And they're just like, "What all right, you know, and they're next thing I know I'm getting research just sent to me and all this stuff. And I (laughs) said, and I said, you know what guys, I said, I'm not going to poo poo it until I get a chance to really dive into it. I said, but my instinct right off the bat, biomechanically, scientifically is I'm going to have a hard time believing this. And I said, no offense to anybody. I don't know the players in the game. I don't know enough about them. But I said, if it does work, and this is what I said, if weighted balls do work, it's because it properly aligns your body behind the ball to be able to launch it or throw it forward efficiently and to the credit of one of the individuals in that class we had a good time um he actually went on and did a master's and we and i got a chance to work with him through the entire process but what we learned was is the very same things that were being used to increase miles per hour off the pitching mound are also on the list that causes injuries to pitchers i.e tommy john surgery Mm -hmm. so what was interesting is like it was almost like we're playing Russian roulette with these kids' arms is what it felt like. Cause we, we filled an entire whiteboard full of all the conclusions of this stack of research. And we're like, okay, these are, this side over here is going to be performance-based increase in miles per hour, velocity. This will be injury mechanisms. And do any level of research in these areas is you can for, for find the performance articles real quickly the injury articles are buried. You got to search for them, and that's the part that I love this kid because he did this. He went in and found it. He did his due diligence, and I, and I got to go with them and work with them, and and we pulled it all out. And I just started walking up to the whiteboard and started circling miles per hour go up. Look at your look at your mechanics. Walk over here, injuries. Look at your mechanics, and I started just separate them. Well, they're on the they're, everything's on the same list. I said, so what we have to start, we have to find a better way to minimize this to improve this and that's why the conversation prior to the show made made a lot of sense to me because i had walked that path already yeah. but i said the only reason a weighted ball will actually improve velocity is not necessarily the strength part of it is the i think it actually if somebody uses it properly it actually helps them align their mechanics better and their. They're throwing the ball without pulling their arm behind them, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And that, that position right there has been shown to put that's your weak link is your is going to be your UCL. Your, yeah, absolutely. Your you, get, you get
0: humoral gliding, gliding and it opens everything up, and then we have problems. But I, yeah. I think that's that's perfect. And I, I'm happy you were able to do that because everybody that brings it up, you know, and I'm like, I get it, but and then I think. One of the things that was a big deal was the guy that did it, James Dunbar. I think his name is. He was already a minor league pitcher, so he's already has the mechanical stuff. And I think, you know, to what you're saying and, and talking about it for people listening, it's not that we're saying it doesn't work, but it's there's a, there's a different way to do it, and there's it's only specific reasons. And for the most part, people that find success already have m- refined mechanics, you know. But you can't take a kid at 12 who has whose body has no clue which way is up. And then let's hand them an 18 ounce ball. And I think that's where we get caught. And I, and I don't, you know, we we've been talking about it, this thing with let's add weight to everything isn't what we're supposed to do, you know? And, and, and I, I think we were talking about the the weighted bat. I read on the other side, you want to swing something lighter that actually ramps up the, it gets you to go a little bit, a little bit heavier. Cause I read a thing, um, similar to what you did from Hawaii, but mine was on soccer weighted balls and how if you have soccer players kick or dribble weighted balls, it it slows down the neuromuscular signal. And it also, now this is soccer, the lever's a little longer, but with the soccer stuff, it was changing the mechanics of the ball and it was changing the foot placement and where they interjected with the ball to produce power. But like I said, I, I think that's it. We We need to start understanding technique. We've been talking about it with technique comes strength and with more strength, you know, the technique will get better, but it's not strength first without technique, because then you're going to kill yourself.
1: I agree. Um, the, the thing about, um, the the thing about the, the way that I learned it was plus or minus. So if it's too light, it can actually create a different motor pattern as well. And so whenever I look at someone becoming proficient at a skill. To me, it's the sequencing. Cause if you ever watch somebody learn something, they've never a dance step, or for me, it was snowboarding. When I was twenty in my twenties when I tried to learn how to snowboard. And I just remember one time just locking everything up and I just asked over tea kettle down the side of this mountain, right? Well, I was mm-hmm. on the kiddie slope, but to me it was a mountain. But the point I'm trying to get to is that you have to learn what motor patterns you need to use in order to manipulate the implement. To, to me, it was a snowboarder that taught me. So it's the same type of thing. If that bat is too light, you might get, you might get the the, the hands out of position in relationship to the barrel of the bat or whatever it happens to be. And that will actually create a detriment if, for the same reason. If it's too heavy, there's like a, there's like a sweet spot. And then mm. the general, from what I understand, the the general rule of thumb is about 10% of whatever that implement is. And like I said, whether it's a soccer ball, a baseball, you know, a, a donut on a bat, whatever that happens to be, it's about 10%. That, and then you start to create a new or novel movement pattern or moment um, uh, recruitment pattern. And that's what changes it. you're wiring something different. And that goes back to Tiger Woods, quote of I'm stuck between two swings. And he got ripped for that, but I'm like, that makes so much sense. Like, holy crap, good for you. And the other one he gets fired for ripped on is I wasn't firing my glutes. And I still laugh at that one.
0: Yeah. And, well, I, you know, I think it's, it's a lot of that too is because people want a bigger answer. You know, I think that's another thing where you see the, you know, it's, it's always very hard to come up with reasons for the yips or for guys struggling because the public doesn't want an easy answer, right? Cause if a guy can't throw people outside of baseball, don't understand how you can have, what's called as the yips for everybody out there listening. It's basically a phenomenon where uh, it was thought to be mental, but usually it's not, it's that hole in the swing we talked about or an issue with letting the ball go. Your patterning changes uh, usually during throwing and you don't know why out of nowhere. And you have very uh, hard difficulty being accurate or, or throwing the ball and, and everything kind of goes terrible. And if you're in it long enough, I've actually seen it end end some careers, but to that point, it's it's because, you know, I think a lot of there's so much pressure. But just like I said, with the glute and with I'm stuck between two swings in professional sports, it's so hard because a lot of the problems that these guys have, it's simple. Why aren't you running as? why aren't you cutting as fast? Oh, well, I broke my big toe in the offseason and that's it. You know, but people don't want that. They want some big, exaggerated. Oh, I started doing this whole different thing. And then now it's wrong. So I'm going to go backwards. So I think that is, is where we have an issue. Uh, I just want to go into like, let's talk a little bit about uh, Dynavec resistance and, and kind of what you do. We've been talking about different biomechanics, different ways to train for sports. So I think it fits right in there. Great to kind of bring up uh, this and and these machines and kind of explain what they do and how they differ uh, from everything else and and how they're kind of helping out people. Yes, sir. Um,
1: Dynavec was, was was born several years ago and, and how I got involved I was I was working on a PhD in biomechanics and um, the gentleman that originated the idea made an appointment with my professor that I was working in his lab and at the very last second goes hey will you sit on this meeting it's about strength training and I'm like absolutely like let's let's do this. I like, was like like sure So we got went to the conference room, we sat down, the gentleman that proposing his idea pitched it. Um, My professor asked a few questions, and then kind of looked at me and goes, What are your thoughts? I asked a few questions. And then my professor responds with, Well, we're not interested. And I was like, Whoa, wait a minute, wait. Wait, 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 I go speak for yourself, you know, and and he goes, you know, it's like, we have a full schedule, we don't have a lot of time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him, I said, Can I can I play with it? do you mind? And he said, it's do it on your own time. In other words, I had to come in on the weekends, that type of thing. And, and, but I was curious, you know, like, wait a minute, what do you, what do you think this thing does? And I'll be honest with you. I was, when I first got a chance to play with it, I was, I was adversarial. I was, I, I was in a really weird position where I was like, I don't even understand. Like it was weird. Like my limited knowledge at the time wasn't wrapping around what he was saying. And he didn't under, he's, he's not a science guy. He's a, he's a fabricator. He's a, he's somebody that plays with metal, but he, he was in love with, as a kid, he was in love with Arthur Jones and his name is Kent folks. And he found Arthur Jones as an early teenager and just anything written by Arthur Jones, he was a hook, line and sinker. And so he was, you know, his background and my background on the strength training continuum were, a world apart like to me it just like what are you talking about so anyway we I wrote a study I wrote a protocol I grabbed a master student I set this whole thing up I've got i reserved the laboratory time we we run the first case studies through just to see kind of what we're looking at what kind of numbers we're getting we're looking for powers you know statistical power how many subjects do we need blah we're doing all that And I'm watching somebody use the machine in the middle of our laboratory. And I'm looking at the computer that has all the EMG outputs on it. And I'm all, damn, like there's something here. Like there is really something here. So at that point I decided to put myself through the protocol. And what we did were five RMs for squatting Uh, a 5RM for Cybex uh, VR2 AEB duction machine. And then we did a five rep max for uh, what we call the Dynavec gluteator now. And we, we analyzed the middle three, we averaged the three repetitions in the middle and we put them side by side by side. And there was a glute contribution that was significantly greater than the first two exercises mentioned. And, we're like, "Okay, now what do we do with this?" And that's how it was clumsy when we started and the kid that was um, uh, was a physical therapist wanted to understand biomechanics better that's who I pulled in because I wanted his clinical background and so we started doing some analysis and started playing with it. I took all the 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 information I organized it into an executive summary, and I went back to Kent. Um, and I said, this is what we recommend. And I just gave him a list of things that we saw. And he said, can I hire you? And I said, no, sir. I said, I'll work, you know, I'll work for you for free. And I said, I'll work for a piece of, you know, a piece of the action, a piece of the company, but I, I don't want to be on a payroll right now because one, I don't think you can, I don't think you're in a place where these are ready to be sold. So I kind of leveraged my future. I, 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 uh, I started working in forensics and then I had an opportunity to come back and teach and help Dynavec grow. And that was in 2012. By 2014, we launched. And then by 2018, we started to become relevant. People started to recognize like, wait a minute, this thing's actually legitimate. It's not just a novelty. We have a lot of novelty stuff in this profession. And then 2019 was a, was a good turn for us. It was a, we, people started to recognize its value in, in, in terms of purchasing it. 2020 was obviously the year of COVID, but we outsold tw- in 2020, we outsold 2019. And on 2021 right now, we're ahead of head of uh, head of pace of any year private previous. So it's been, it's been a hell of a journey, um, but that's kind of how I got involved with it. How Kent originally designed it. It's a funny story. He actually opened a textbook anatomy physiology textbook, looked at the glute fibers and said, I bet you I can build a better mousetrap. I bet you I can build something that works better on the glutes. And to his credit, he he's fabricated something. And, and the original design has been modified a little bit, not by much. And it basically, we pair two points of resistance together simultaneously to create a plane of motion or plane of resistance that is that mimics the glute fibers and it pun intended but it's a royal pain in the glutes if you use it properly it'll isolate your glutes and what i tell people is that don't understand what i mean is our machine to your glutes are is very similar to your quadriceps response to a really aggressive leg extension set or or exercise. So in other words, walking away from the two machines, your quadriceps feel pumped with blood. There's a fatigue level there. There's something going on walking away from our machine. It's exactly the same feeling, except it's isolated in your backside. It's your glutes that feel that way. So then when you start understanding that that's when it gets fun, because now we start programming for function. We start programming for therapeutic. We start the aesthetics market is really kind of bought into it first and foremost, though.
0: Oh, awesome story. Like I said, I I think it's an amazing machine. For those out there listening, can you just describe what the machine looks like? I mean, I know it's hard. I've seen pictures of it and it's a little difficult, but just to give a little bit more context, kind of maybe what it looks like and and kind of how it acts just so, you know, everybody out listening uh, has kind of a a little bit better of understanding of what what it looks like.
1: The the first thing that people look at it and and it takes a special person to watch the movement and truly embrace what it does. It's it's but when most people walk up on it, they go, "Oh, it's an abduction machine." And my typical smart eh, alec response is, "It's not your mother's abduction machine." That's just what typically comes out of my mouth because I'm a little bit of a wise ass. But the point is, is that it, it is an abduction machine. But by having it combined with some hip extension, so we go hip extension with hip abduction are combined what happens is the glute maximus is is used in a way that is not you can't it, very difficult to reproduce can mm-hmm. you reproduce it some people say you can um I've played with a lot of different exercises. It's it's pretty difficult to reproduce in a weight room with what our machine does. This is not a new concept. I mean, Arthur Jones wrote this wrote about bidirectional resistance in Bulletin One, Chapter Two. I mean, he this was something those came out in the 70s. So it's not it's a new concept. But what we're doing is is that we are actually a, going back to motor patterns. We're literally recruiting motor units in the way that the glute maximus fires when you're in a hip flexed near 90 degree position. And people have a hard time wrapping the brain around that because the glute maximus is one of your primary hip abductors. When you are in a flexed position, we learn our, our anatomy physiology and standing and anatomical. And that's not what the maximus has often contributed. But when you actually get into that flex position, IE the bottom of a squat, What you see is the glute max has high activity Um, if you are AB ducting. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why the whole bands around the knee became such a sensation is because it was creating a strength arc that was difficult to reproduce with just regular squats. I'm not saying what we know about bands around knees, the heavier the load gets, the less that band contributes to muscle activity. That's a different side level of research, but what our machine has showed is that the glute maximus will significantly fire loaded in those two two planes of motion simultaneously, and we're seeing really good transfer within the weight room. So in other words, if you use our machine as a PAP, a post-activation potentiation, what you'll see is more glute activity during a squat or a thrust or whatever lunge or a deadlift even when the bars passing the knees which is one of the more critical sections of a deadlift right the glutes are more active so we're seeing tremendous transfer within the weight room but then we're also seeing that better positioning of the body outside of the weight room as well and then we talked about injury potential so directional movements planting cutting glute activity, valgus position of the knee, glute weakness is one of the significant contributors to that position you don't want your kids, or your athletes in. And that's what we're finding as a functional biomechanist, somebody who wants to minimize injury, glute weakness is one of those areas that I often looked at prior to even being involved with this company or this product.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, we talked about a little bit, before you know the knee predominantly when that gets injured that's all glutes and I think it's it's great with the you know your piece of equipment does because we always do glute stuff right because we know that the glutes help you know with the knee but if we look at a soccer cut right if your knees are both bent and it's behind your center of gravity we can't train for that you can do all the squats you want all the glute bridges that's something you know and I think we, you bring it up that the positional strengthening you know and I think that's what makes the, the machine so unique is that it's testing all the fibers and loading all the fibers in a, in a, a pattern that we don't ever use, but it's, it's the most effective for the glue because we use, you know, one of the things in, you know, we, with strength conditioning is a lot of times we use mechanisms or, or movement patterns in a weight room that have nothing to do with what's actually going on around on the field, right? You can squat all you want and you can deadlift, but, if you're in soccer and you're going right with all your momentum and you want to plant your right foot down and you blow your right, you can't train for that. So I think that's very, you know, uh, like I said, being able to kind of train the glutes a the right way, but B get full activation in ways that they're going to be taxed before or in a, in a time where they would originally you'd have an injury or something else.
1: Well, and this comes to back, this, this conversation just went into a phys, phys, um, philosophical discussion because it, it's what you believe in as a strength coach like what what are your beliefs when you start programming because what I I believe now I believe if I want my squat which I think is one of the most valuable lifts that anyone can do in a weight room is if you teach somebody how to properly squat you earned your money that day because you you had to work well one of the things that I'd start doing many 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 years ago was um a, I the question became do I use squat to become a better squatter or do I use accessory lifts to become a better squatter? And what I mean, and that goes back to the work capacity conversation that we had earlier. I want to make sure my adductors are strong. I want to make sure that my, my, my lumbar region, my, my erector spinae are strong. I want to make sure my glutes, my knee extensors. I want to make sure all of those are strong so that when someone hits the bottom part of a squat, their stability And they can reverse that downward momentum proficiently. And that's what I look for when I squat is how well can you transition from that eccentric load to the concentric push. And that's, to me, that's the pivotal point where our machine really contributes. And I've talked to enough power lifters who beat our machine up really, really well, that the stability that our machine helps them with at that bottom transition is Worth its weight, and that's that's what I enjoy because I there's, they understand, and you know it, it it took us a long time for people to really buy into that concept and embrace it, but I've I mean I've got a, a laundry list of people that I work with on a regular basis and helping them program this goofy little machine into their their strength programs, and we're hoping that you know we we're in the NFL. Um, I've had an offensive lineman tell me point blank, this machine will single-handedly preserve my career because of what it, the strength that it provides and the position that they have to come out of for 50 to 75 plays a game, right? And that's, to me, that was, I mean, it was just a great moment for us. We just kind of sat and enjoyed it. You know, it's not like I can take that information, tell you who said it and show you how it changed their career because it was done in, out of respect, in a private conversation, but it did it make my day? Hell yeah, it did. You know that's 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 what we're trying to do. You know, is help people become better at what it is they want to become or what they want to do.
0: Absolutely, and you know that ability to, that, like you talked about, that's where the injury comes, or if we have the weakness, that transition from eccentric to concentric in the middle. And I think that because of that. It's not talked about a lot, right? Oh yeah, we do eccentrics. Oh, we do isometrics. We do, but why, right? We talk about philosophies. It's because if you do all three of those together and we add contrast training and, you know, different things, you know, um, French, uh, French contrast, stuff like that, what you're actually doing if we use all those things and most people that use that have a higher level, you're just taking the body through those transitions that you're talking about that this machine can help in aid them be stronger in that those certain positions. And I think that is one of the things where until you understand it, I love how you bring that up, until you fully understand what you're actually doing, certain things won't make sense. And that's why it's important to have a full understanding because of what you're trying to do.
1: Well the best thing to me, this is my opinion now, but the best thing about our machine is there's very little load through the low back and there's very little load through your knees. So as a therapeutic tool for those individuals that say like sprain an ankle, I can start ankle rehab right away because the first thing that happens in ankle rehab is your, is your concentrate on your ankle and your kinetic chain is altered or weakened. Your meat shuts down, right? What's that?
0: Your meat, your glute meat will shut down almost immediately right after you sprain. It affects
1: it. And then you've got, you're basically dominant on your non-injured side and you're, you're using your injury side very little. So depending on how, you know, five to eight weeks or whatever your ankle rehabilitation is, here's one that uh, I'll put this out there and it's, this is still anecdotal. This is not conclusive. This is just me being me, but I challenge anybody to play with this and get back to me. Cause I I'm, I'm real interested. This is a question that I'm going to pose, but, ACL injuries, ACL non-contact injuries, 70%, uh, estimated at 70%, right? So that means that people are collapsing under their own body weight. So ACL non-contact, 70% of all ACL injuries are non-contact. What's interesting, about six to eight years ago, I started asking people, before your ACL injury, did you suffer a serious ankle injury? And... people who told me yes is very high. And I said, when, how many months or weeks before? And the average is somewhere in that three to four month range prior to ACL injury, they had suffered a significant ankle injury. Now I've torn my ACL and I tore the absolute crap out of my ankle about six weeks before I tore my ACL up. That's, so it's personal for me, but that's kind of, I know we, we try to fix our own problems in this profession and I get it, but that's my own journey too. So Consequently, if you start understanding that what we just said, glute the glute muscles are responsible for external rotation of the femur. So if your ankle is, is not functioning or you're putting a lot of emphasis on that movement, not emphasizing the hip, you're focusing on the ankle, what happens is you come back to play, ankle's been cleared, but you still have some level of dysfunction or weakness, one of the two, up that upstream in that kinetic chain. And it often presents itself as knee valgus on a land or a cut. And it's a, in, in addition to some of that contributing downstream might be the fact that the ankle has lost some of its mobility due to um, the injury that occurred. So there's kind of a double whammy that's going on and the weak link. And now in this new system that you're trying to play on is going to be at the knee. And I'm not a hundred percent conclusive on that, but I'm definitely leaning that direction in terms of looking at preparing an athlete coming back from something as simple as an ankle sprain. And I like what our machines, because we have an ankle machine as well, and that's a shameless plug, but it's, how, it's what I believe, it's what we believe, and that's why we designed them the way we have. But what I believe in is that the ankle rehabilitation process actually starts at the hip, maintaining all levels of strength, so that when your ankle is ready to come back, that there's a quick transition into making sure the entire kinetic chain or, or system function, if you will, the leg, the extremity, functions as the same unit prior to your injury. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I think it's a great concept in, you know, learning how to, if you have an athlete that does something at the ankle, instead of wasting time, let's start right away at the glutes because I don't think regard, you know, I don't think there's any negative in that because if, if you sprain an ankle and we go crazy on your glutes, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I don't think there's. You know, I, I don't think that there's a there's a problem that can happen with that, at least until your ankle's healed, right? I, I don't think the the pros and the cons are, what's the negative in that? Your glutes get too strong? You know, I, I think that's that's something that should be addressed. I mean, it's almost like the, you know, a different injury, but look at the Bo Jackson and the Tua injury. You know, when Bo Jackson blew out his hip, he severed an artery, and then he, he you know, we list, we watched the downfall of one of the greatest athletes ever, but then when Tua did it at Alabama – they fixed it right away. So I think it's, it's certainly in that years ago, we didn't know, but now it should be a hundred percent. You sprain an ankle. We have issues. We have something where I have to go see a trainer or a PT because of my ankle. I think that, you know, uh, glute, uh, glute exercises, activation, whatever should be on the docket first, because it's going to prevent that knee stuff. I think that's a great point And I think that makes perfect sense.
1: So just to control- Tribute to what you're saying. Our ankle system, we call it the plantaris. Um, it is what the first thing that we've noticed. We take the. I don't care who the athlete is; they can be the most coordinated person you've ever met. There's a learning curve to our the machine, which tells you that they've never actually turned this way. And what one of our one of the exercises you can do on this machine is actually dorsiflexion with eversion. And that eversion becomes really difficult for people. And it shows you how limited we don't actually address that in our strength programming, even though the ankle is the first major joint to interact with the ground. We've now got everybody taking their shoes off in the weight room, but we're not actually addressing the ankle stability, i.e. the lateral compartment. So the first thing that, that we notice when we put people on is there's a learning curve that they have to figure that out. Like, mind to muscle, if you will, or mind to joint positioning, right? They've got to work through this. The second thing that we start to notice is ankle weakness or lateral compartment weakness, um, how weak our lateral compartments actually are. And then you start looking at the mechanism of high or normal ankle sprains. It is if we strengthen your peroneal muscles, how does that affect your injury profile or your potential injury profile during an ankle sprain? Now, our machine is not going to prevent the injury from occurring, but if I can strengthen your peroneals, you might minimize the downtime. You might come back faster because that tissue is more supple. Um, you, you more metabolic, there's more blood flow to the area because you've been strengthening it a little bit better. It is really interesting, kind of with this with our ankle machine, how that is actually changing the ankle. And then if you combine it with knee extension, knee flexion, and then our hip extension, and then a good deduction machine or exercise, then we start to see that lower body. And then, like I said, within the weight room or to the field diamond track court pitch, right out onto the field of play. What we start to see is that transition or that transfer just a little bit more proficient.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. And, and, you know, you bring up the, the barefoot. I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times. It makes me cringe because you see a kid with bare feet and then you have that collapsing to the medial side. And I'm like, what do we, d- d- this is, um, and you know, you, you go around people that don't look at stuff that way. Why are you, what's the problem? And I'm like, you're killing yourself squatting barefoot. They should put, you should squat barefoot. If your foot looks like this, you know, and, and I think, like I said, we, we talked about all the time the modalities and the things that are, and I think this is why your equipment, the stuff that you guys are doing, is so amazing because it, if you get on it and you pass that learning curve, it is going to do exactly what you said it's going to do and it's going to help the pattern. Whereas we're seeing, you know, and we've talked about it, this influx of, you know, garbage, if you will, because we have all these modalities, but if you're not in the right pattern, you don't understand what you're doing, or you have other imbalances, you just create more stuff, right? You have the flat shoes. Well, it's great if you can extend your feet and they root into the ground and your pronials are strong and you have a very good base. But if you have flat feet or your ankles are bad, you walk around barefoot is, is a disaster and a half and you need to get some other shoes. It's the same thing with driveline. You know, the weighted baseballs. not going after driveline, but if you have garbage mechanics, you throwing around a weighted ball is going to kill you. And I think that's you know same thing core velocity belt i love all the equipment i've used it with my players but it's having an understanding of what am i using it for and does the person that i'm using it for are they set up for this and i think that going backwards is good because you talked about before with the bands here's the thing with the bands there is really nothing bad that can happen with the bands right if you put the bands around the knees we're, we're turning on the glute med, we're preventing the knee valgus, and if you do a bunch of exercise with it on, it's just helping and doing things that we're not used to doing, so that's a positive, but that's why they're a big deal, because people don't get hurt using them, but now when we take Driveline or the Vibrams, they cause issues, right? I mean, I had a conversation during COVID with my friend about Peloton. I love Peloton, but if you don't ride a bike, and all of a sudden, I'm on a bike 45 <laughs> minutes a day with some guy yelling at me, riding up a fictional mountain we're going to have some injuries to the knee and, and to the adductors.
1: Well, the, the funny thing for me, taking it back to pitching, is if you just watch, just watch the foot-to-mound interaction and take, if, if you can, because you've got a biomechanical brain, put weak pronials on that person. If we could do like a computer simulation, right? Mm-hmm. Look, at, look at where the knee goes if, that, if you lack ankle stability. It coming, Boom. coming, the trail drink. Yeah, yeah. The trail dra- Yep. And so then what's happening is we're probably pushing out to our toes because mm-hmm. that's just a natural instinct. We're now turning our glutes off and now we're more of an upper body thrower. Whereas if you have ankle stability coming off the mound, you're going to load those peroneals. Are going to create a ankle stability, and then your glute, your glute muscles are going to get more involved, and you're going to have more hip stability. I'm just talking about just the trail leg coming mm. off the mound. I'm not even talking about your your lead leg on impact of or a foot plant, right? Mm. So when you just look at that, just that one moment, and I'm talking about loading and striding, just watch what happens at the trail leg interaction, foot mound, and look at what happens to the foot with, with, and without ankle stability. It is tremendous. And and you can almost predict release velocity and how much of an arm thrower they become. And then they have a shelf life, before they start compensatory movements, as a result of, in my opinion, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'll talk to anybody about this, but that's what I truly believe. So, if your lower body is has weakness or a compensatory function, then your upper body is, it's gonna show in your upper body, in my opinion.
0: No, absolutely. I, I, I agree. I've done some, some biomechanics stuff with my friends, and, and one of the things we looked at of a number of months ago is also too kids that dig big holes in front of the rubber. It's because they have an inability to plant on the, you know, the, let's say a right-handed pitcher, they can't roll the foot over so that hole the bigger the hole is it's because gravitationally the foot just collapses. So they don't have any true stability of the ankle and it doesn't work up the chain to power the glute. So why they, they dig a giant hole. So the foot naturally falls and nobody ever picks that up. And so the foot falls naturally, and then the rest of their body goes forward. But because we don't have peroneal stability, and we don't have that ability to pronate the right way under control, now we've upper body throwing and leading into Tommy John. But that is something, and I'll be the first to tell you, I didn't realize it until my friend who's very good at pulling information out of me. He set scenarios up so I can think, but that was the thing. I've never thought of that. But he said, yeah, you know why guys dig big holes? Why? Because they can't turn their foot. They cannot. They can't put their weight to one side, activate the peroneals and then work the chain up. So they just collapse. What happens when they collapse? They collapse the ankle. The knee goes forward on that initial foot on the rubber. We get rid of the glutes and then what happens? We try to create more torque with the upper body and then we start throwing. Eventually we get the thing you talked about before. We get humeral gliding. The, you know, the chest wide open, we get lag, and then we get blown out elbows. But I think to what we've been talking about, these little tiny things, people don't want to take the time and to look and say, well, that's the reason, right? And, and I think it's easier to say, well, Tommy John, and especially since I always think it's, it's very contradicting. When you look at a lot of guys come back from Tommy John, nobody's there to fix their patterns. They just get their elbow fixed, and then somebody watches them throw exactly the same way that they threw before they had Tommy John.
1: Well, some of the original research that came back post Tommy John was, um, like I I, I got to go back and make sure I reread this correctly, but a lot of it was highly encouraged to where a lot of kids were trying to throw their elbows out to to come back and get a stronger UCLO so they could increase their velocity. But the studies that have come out lately have said that that's simply a false false statement, and that it, many careers are falling by the wayside with with Tommy John surgery. And and like I said, it's I'm not, I'm not up on that as as much as I probably should, but I've, I've read those articles, but I just, to me, surgical procedures are going to hinder your progress. Um, And a lot of research is coming out now, you know, 10, 20, 25 years post-surgical procedure and the ability to function. And we're seeing a lot of those numbers because we're now, we started collecting data in the 80s that are now being really analyzed and and being uh, looked at, scrutinized, if you will, of success long term. And I think that Tommy John is so, even though it's been around for a while, exponentially over the last 10 years, I mean, that surgical procedure has just gone off the charts and I think that you know, five years from now, we're going to start to see that it might not be advantageous at all, and that we preventative would have been the better option. If yeah, that makes ab- sense?
0: No, absolutely. I, I think that cutting is never good. I don't think people truly understand the 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 trauma and the problems that it causes. Right? I mean, to think, oh yeah, yeah, just get rid of it. Put it. well, no, your brain, your nervous system, go through a whole big thing. You Your brain guards the muscle, a bunch of stuff turns off, we have to rewire things. And then even if you're throwing well, after and you're healed, there is still issues and problems and different things, because that initial pop is still in your mind. And I I think that's something that's kind of misunderstood, your brain remembers everything it goes through. And, you know, any surgery you get your body remembers that and I think that is where it's oh well you know but again we we make assumptions oh well if the ligament stretched out then if we get it regularly attached it's better the problem is that people don't the ligament doesn't throw the ball the ligament is just there and you broke it because it's you know it, it is what it is but like I said I think that's a problem and I and I think you're right as we go through you know I think, you know, regardless of VLO numbers we talked about before, I think the instances of surgery and the way they're done are going to become less and less and less because I think 99% of this stuff we can ultimately fix. I mean, yes, sports, there is injuries. That's a risk. We're all going to take it, but I also think there's going to be a better way, right? If you have ankle problems, say you have a person who has, let's say ankle air ACL, like we talked about, if we incorporate glute stuff, if we start to identify why that happened? I think the like you just you know seventy percent non-contact. That means under your own body weight, well, you're blowing your ACL out. Now, if somebody dives at your knee, okay, you you know that's a natural phenomenon. But I think the way in which people tear their ACLs is seventy percent without getting touched. The more we can efficiently help that and prevent that, I think it's going to go down. You know, regardless of if there's still that prevalence, because if it was just you know all freak occurrence, that's of ACLs, which is what out of, out of a thousand, that's, you know, 300, you know, and the number's probably lower than that per team or per sport.
1: And like I said, that's how, I mean, understanding ACL is why I got into this. And you start looking at mathematically, you look at probabilities, you know, the probability that 70 out of a hundred people are going to collapse under their own body weight and tear their knee, you know, that's that, those are bad numbers. I mean, that, that's just something that we don't, we we should be able to fix that, you know, we should be able to address that. And then you get into, you know, the gender argument and the discussion and, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, there's a, I mean, we could do a whole nother show just on mm-hmm. ACL, but, you know, I just, it's what got me involved in this in terms of trying to understand, you know, what is our, what are we contributing? What is it that we can address? We can address neuromuscular interaction. We can't fix their anatomy you know we can't go in and change it pre we could but you know that's a science experiment that we probably are never going to get past sarcasm the the next one is environmental well we've gotten better at trying to figure out you know the field the, the turf the the court whatever it happens to be and then the last one that's an argument on the female side is the you know the regulation of hormones during a cycle and that's that there's some promise there but it's inconsistent it, it you we can't reproduce one article doesn't necessarily, isn't sustainable over time by multiple researchers. And so we're, there's a little bit of controversy there. And so I, I, I acknowledge that elastin and I acknowledge all that that there's a hormonal contribute contribution, but I just take the, that kind of like yes that is a possibility but we're going to pretend we're going to move forward and we're going to focus on the neuromuscular making sure that your your body doesn't compensate it's strong enough to support yourself under landing um and that your movement patterns or motor patterns are installed properly so skill and strength and then transfer and that's the way that i approach it it's very to me it's a very simple mathematical equation in my opinion
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, we we have to continuously understand the body's a machine. It moves on levers and there's three basic levers. And we have mostly ones that are not efficient in terms of gravity. And the way we move for the most part is, you know, a lot of the times we get hurt is because we're not supposed to move that way. But I, I think that that's one of the things we have to continuously understand the body's a machine. There's blood in it. There's muscles, there's emotions, but everything moves a machine. We have to stay around that and understand that's what it is. This machine runs that way, right? A lawnmower runs one way. We run a different way. Highly complex, but we have to do that. I think we forget that. We we kind of figure there's a different way to do it because we have different stuff in there. But at the end of the day, the pulley system is the pulley system. The lever system is the lever system. Yes, the you know the ropes are alive, if you will, and they're controlled by a you know a, a highly complex system. But that understanding, which I think is 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 great, you have to look at the body like a machine. What do I want this machine to do? How can I change the inner workings with what I have to make it better and that's it and and I think there's too much of you know trying to change it emotionally or trying to you know do things that that don't make sense biomechanically or whatever that's always my favorite oh well, this works well how there's because mathematically and, and in terms of what it's supposed to do, there's no way that works right and then you get that argument where there's there's no studies there is no hard data where you took somebody, you did it, and it went there on the field. And then there's, you know, or, you know, my personal favorite in our nice realm is I like or I feel is always a problem for me. I like this exercise. I like to do these. And I'm like, well, that's fantastic for I like. But when you're doing with another person, different machine, different levers, you know, different, different points of contact.
1: No, I, like I said, and, and to me, I always just kind of look back and say, you know, systematically if 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 this athlete standing before me was a video game, where would I pump up stability? Where would I pump up mobility? How would I change their imbalances? You know, it's not gonna happen overnight, but I'm gonna progress them towards to be the most efficient person on the in, in their sport, you know, strength wise. And that way they will the way that I see it is if you go to perform your skill, whatever sport you play at the highest level, and you are pain free as you perform it, you will become much more proficient at it. Well, strength, in my mind, is a way to raise that capacity so that your opportunity to pr- perform at the highest level is elevated because you're not going to compensate because you're not feeling that. That limiter you're not your brain's not putting on the brakes because whoa whoa wait that doesn't feel right that my body doesn't like the way that feels or whatever it is, and to me that's you can call it holistic or whatever that's just how I feel that's what my responsibility is is to make sure that the athlete has the opportunity to perform at the highest level i e not put the limitations on them because they're f- experiencing some level of pain
0: absolutely. Our goal should be to have them move efficiently at the highest level without fear of injury or, uh, or any pain. Jeff, for anybody out there listening that wants to get involved in, you know, maybe biomechanics, right, or is interested in how machines work, new technologies, what is your advice on how to, how to get involved, kind of how to break it, right? Say I'm coming out of high school and I want to get involved in biomechanics. I'm interested in, in how the body moves. In your your you know, with your experience, what's your advice? How do I
1: start? First thing is get to know yourself. Um, I know that sounds cliche, but you got to know your why. I mean, like you and I've talked about, I mean, you've got to be, you got to enjoy math. I mean, and, and that's kind of a, you know, math is a universal language. And, and I can tell you my experiences, the further I've gone to biomechanics, the less people that, um, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of people from many different countries and, You know, the higher I've gone in biomechanics, the less that I've worked with people from this country. So the very first thing that you have to understand is that you've got to enjoy math and then applied math on top of that. So those word problems that everybody hates in elementary school and beyond, word problems is exactly what biomechanics is. You're using math to solve a real life situation and i 'll tell you straight up, I went into forensics. I mean, the accidents already occurred. I had to figure out the different ways that it could have possibly caused that injury. Most valuable thing i 've ever did. It took me completely away from the academic model and it put me into real the real life so biomechanically, um, the very first thing you need to do is understand applied math or mathematics in general. You have to enjoy it, and you know I just think that that's not there 's not a lot of people out there that will admit that. Um, and you go all the way in it, the highest level of biomechanics, you get, you get into differential equations and, and, um, you start looking at, uh, uh, advanced calculus. You start playing with, uh, the different matrices and all that other stuff. You have to know all that stuff to be able to compute. The second thing is, is, is going to biomechanics with some level of intent, There's not a lot, you can't just graduate with a degree in biomechanics and go, here I am, like, I'm ready. Like, where do you want me to work? It's, it doesn't work that way. If you're a physical therapist who understands biomechanics, you'll, you're more likely to be hired. If you're a biomechanist who understands clinical, which is more of what I am, you're going to work. You're going to have to work really hard to find a job because it's just, there's, it's just not there. Um, a lot of the shoe companies, a lot of the equipment companies will look at bio, biomechanists. But the question that I always ask for sarcasm is which is more valuable, the R&D or the marketing departments? Uh, they're going to put their money in marketing because you're going to use a little bit of R&D to, to educate the potential customers, but it's going to be a marketing campaign, not an R&D campaign that's going to sell the product. That's sarcasm, but it's probably real close to being the truth. So if you love biomechanics, figure out how you want to use it. I really believe that right now, motor learning, um, understand the neurological system from a biomechanical point of view is probably the wave of the future in this profession. Understand the neurological system as it affects strength training is probably the wave of this profession. Um, A lot of our strength professionals, a lot of our therapists have very little understanding how the neurological system actually helps the muscular system contract forcefully or succinctly or to improve skill. That's what I believe.
0: Awesome. Awesome advice. Uh, I think that's great. And and anybody listening, make sure, you know, follow those things, do your due diligence, right? Make sure, you know, I I think it it goes for everything. Make sure you like the components of what you're getting into, right? And you have the time Try to, you know, I'm sure, you know, b- become exposed to as much as you can, right? If you really like biomechanics, go watch somebody who's a biomechanist, or go, you know, into performance or, or do something, right? Do not go to, I will say this 100%, do not go to college for a degree and get a master's and have no idea what you want to do or do not take any time to go figure out what you want to do because I think I've seen it in PT. I've seen it tons of a thing. You get people that go to school for eight years to be physical therapists, they come out, somebody shoves them someplace and they despise it. And now you have a really expensive degree with a skill that you hate and the thing you don't even like what you're doing. So I I think that is always the best piece of advice. Make sure you like what you're doing and make sure actually no, make sure you love what you're doing, right? If you don't like math, but you're interested in, you got to, you know, find another way. But I think that is a thing. Take the time, especially in this wonderful society we have with social media and everybody's opinion, but another story, but you know, take the time to, understand what you're doing and make sure you like all facets and if you don't like a part of something make sure that the other parts you love enough to kind of offset the stuff that you don't like because as we know everything has a um you know everything has some some negatives to it uh jeff if anybody wants to kind of reach you get a hold of you ask you some questions about you know the the resistance equipment or you know kind of the stuff we talked about today or just have a general question about biomechanics where is the best place to reach you and get a hold of you and, and send you over a question
1: Probably, um, well, I'm going to give you three different ways. One is through, we're real active on Instagram. Um, it's just the one that's kind of been the most favorable for us of all the social medias. We've got a Twitter account. Um, we we play with it, but we're not real active on it. We have a Facebook account, but we're same thing. We're just not real active. So on Instagram, we're just Dynavec. It's a word mash Dyna- dynamic vectors dynavec md md stands for multi-directional so if you go the at symbol uh dynavec md you'll find us we're three arrows um symbolizing three-dimensional um and you can find us pretty quickly the next way would be the website if you want to just play on it for a little bit you'll see we have three different machines one is currently being re-engineered which is for the torso um and then that is www.dynavecmd.com, or you can email us at dynavec@outlook.com. At and all three ways, I'm real active during the day. And if you get a hold of me, or just want to shoot, you know, ask me questions, or challenge anything I said, or present research that's conversed to what I just mentioned, I'm I look forward to it. I mean, it's just something I am what I'm becoming. I'm I'm a work in progress. I'm learning every day
0: awesome and uh, when I put the post out for the podcast on my Instagram I also tag you and everybody listening I uh, will have your Instagram handle under there so when the episode does come out uh, that link will work and it will, it will lead you right to right to your page uh, and allow you to, to ask questions for sure all right thank you Jeff thank you so much for coming on I, I appreciate it it was very it uh, Wonderful conversation. I enjoyed going the biomechanics side. You know, I haven't really talked about that too much, but I always love kind of diving into it and diving into that that deep stuff uh, that in my opinion is, isn't really talked about too much, you know. And and also it's great to see that we're still uh you know, we're, we're we're still getting places in terms of machines, right? Because one of the things that I've always noticed, you know, living in gyms for the last 17 years, there is not a whole lot of Progression in machines, right? We we make the same machine over. We paint it a different color. We change the color of the matting, but for the most part, besides Louis Simmons's hyper, you know the uh, the which the reverse hyper and and a little bit of what Kaiser's trying to do, I don't think there is there's been enough um, you know there there's been enough innovation, right? It seems like after novelists and and the guy we talked about before, uh, people kind of stopped thinking. So it's it's great and refreshing to see that you know, what you guys are doing there is, is changing the game and and being able to push.
1: Well, an interesting point to that is that that also hurt us is because when people first saw it, they're just, they, they couldn't, they wouldn't or couldn't. I'm not, everyone has their own journey with what we, what we've done, but it really hurt us in the beginning because people just didn't think that we, they just thought we were another fitness product that, that had no merit. So we're just now getting to the point where people are looking at it and understanding it. And so I'm I'm hoping that we get more and more people in this profession that sees the opportunity to strengthen. This may actually significantly contribute to the profession.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I hope what we talked about here will bring more awareness because it's great, and and you're right, like I said. We need to, you know, the, the the equipment that we use has to has to keep has to keep going up and progressing.
1: Okay.
0: All right. Thank you again.
1: Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.